They're gliding baseball rags. See the pitcher throw and strike them out. You got them going. Uh-oh. They're gliding baseball rags. Don't you be a quitter. Show them you're a heavy hitter. Some classy curve the pitcher twirling. Go on, kids. Spin without a whirling. Hey, soak it out. Soak it out. Make a home run. Ball. Strike. Stay hit. First base. Make second. You're up. First. Keep it going, sonny. Make me win a lot of money. Don't stop until you're touching third. You're a holy terror. Center fielder made an error. Slide. Slide. You made a good beginning for you know that your team always makes a winning when you play ball and sing that baseball rag. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to the Friday, May 12th edition of Free Baseball the podcast that goes into extra innings to bring you the best in observation, insight, and analysis of our national pastime. I'm your host, Robert Cadera. Before we begin this week's show, I've received a couple of inquiries from listeners about the opening theme of Free Baseball, where the song comes from, who sings it. It's called The Baseball Rag, and it was written by Clarence Jones and David Wolfe, It was recorded in 1913. The vocalist is Arthur Collins, one of the most popular early recording artists in the 20th century before World War I. Known as the King of the Ragtime Singers, Collins' most famous song was The Preacher and the Bear, recorded in 1905. That was the most popular non-operatic record in the first decade of the 20th century. Collins had about a dozen number one hits during his lifetime. Alas, The Baseball Rag is his only song about our national pastime. I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode of Free Baseball will continue our look at the 2023 season. The look began last week, as you might recall, and this week we're continuing it, focusing in on the changing characteristics of the game, especially as new rules have taken effect. We also have a new feature for you, Under the Microscope, where we'll take a look up close each week at the performance of a particularly noteworthy player. We begin this week with the most noteworthy player in baseball today, Shohei Otani of the Angels. We'll conclude the show with another unsung hero and the answer to last week's trivia question. So let's get things started. Jane, give us our musical segue into this week's free baseball. first thing you're apt to notice when you look at 2023 Major League Baseball games is the virtual disappearance of the three-and-a-half-hour contest. You remember all those Red Sox-Yankee games? You knew they were going to be three-and-a-half to four hours. You set aside an extra beer, and you got what you expected. Well, this year, that's all changed, and the three-and-a-half-hour baseball game is definitely an endangered species soon to be extinct. The numbers don't lie. So far, this year, there have been 
two games that have gone more than three and a half hours. Two nine-inning games. Last year, 2022, there were 232 Major League games that dragged on for three and a half hours or more. The only two games this year that have gone that long, one was the opening day thriller between the Cardinals and the Blue Jays that ended up a 10-9 game, and the other was the kind of ridiculous 16-11 game in Mexico City between the Padres and the Giants. The nine-inning, three-and-a-half-hour baseball game is on its way out the door. And soon, like the 15-round boxing matches that disappeared in 1983, three-and-a-half-hour baseball games will be gone. There seems to be a universal appreciation for the shorter games, I think the reason for that is that we get the same amount of action just in less time. So it's not like they're taking action away on the field. Strikeouts, that's another separate problem that remains to be solved. But as far as actual physical action on the field, we get the same amount now compressed into a shorter time frame And I think people appreciate that. Even the extra inning games, which uh, now feature the phantom runner on second base as we start each inning, have generally been received well. I'm less enthusiastic about that. I did enjoy the the marathons, the 15, 16, 17, 18 inning Donnybrooks that seem to go on into the night. Uh, I understand The reason that they tried to get rid of those, and one, ironically, was that they wanted to preserve the health of their pitching staffs. Now, I can understand that as a valid goal, but I think perhaps there's a problem here that we need to take a closer look at, and that is, by compressing the action, we allow pitchers less time between pitches to catch their breath, uh, to set themselves, to get their bodies ready. And that's the second major change I see in baseball this year, and it has to do with the dreaded word injury, especially injuries to pitchers. In the first 32 games of this season, 182 major league pitchers spent time on the injured list. That comes out to six per team. That's half of a staff. Some teams have been decimated by this more than others. As a Mets fan, I should know. For whatever reasons, Uncle Steve decided to spend his money. He got two old pitchers, Verlander and Max Scherzer, 40 and 39 years old respectively, who have spent a majority of this season on the injured list. Now, you might say he should have known they were old. On the other hand, if you look at their performances the last year, Verlander is the reigning Cy Young winner in the American League. Scherzer had some injuries for the Mets last year, but when he was on the mound, he pitched effectively. If I go across town to Yankee Stadium, my Yankee fan friends will be crying tears long into the night, I think, over Carlos Rodon and $160 million that are going out now to a pitcher who has never in his entire career thrown 150 innings in back-to-back seasons. I think it's more than a coincidence that these veteran pitchers 
who know their bodies, who have their routines, who know how to prepare for a game, are finding it difficult to stay on the mound. 182 pitchers to the injured list in the first month of the season. Am I saying it's entirely due to the pitch clock? No, not at all. The way that pitchers develop, the strategies that they use of going all out, throwing everything they have out there on the mound, and then expecting a bullpen to finish up the games for them so that they don't have to pace themselves, all that's a factor too. But I'm not willing to turn my head and ignore the fact that shorter games with the same amount of pitches means less time between each pitch for a pitcher to catch his breath, to collect himself, and to get himself physically ready for the next pitch. The one place where I have noticed a pitcher visually fatiguing is when the opposition pitcher has a short inning. Let's say you're throwing a 20-25 pitch inning. You go into the dugout. The opposing pitcher gets three outs in six pitches, and you've got to go back out there without having had time to rest. I noticed that when I watched Carlos Carrasco pitch for the Mets, and I've noticed it in other games with other teams as well. So I think that's something that needs to be looked at. Maybe they adjust it from 15 seconds to 20 seconds when the bases are empty. I'm not sure. But I think they need to study this, especially when we get into July, August, and September, and some of these pitchers are approaching 150, 180, maybe even 200 innings. Again, I'm not suggesting that the pitch clock is the reason we have more pitching injuries. We didn't have a clock in 2019, and the number of pitchers on the injured list that year went up. We didn't have a clock in 2021, and the injuries went up. We didn't have a clock last year and the injuries went up. But I think it's something that needs to be studied, and if necessary, adjustments need to be made. Beyond that, I will say again, the way that young pitching is developed needs to be closely watched, and also the strategies that are used with your pitching staffs. How many pitches can a guy throw when he's out there cruising along? How many pitches can he throw when he's having difficulty? How do you use your bullpen? How many days in a row do they pitch? How do you develop bullpen pitchers in the minor leagues? Do you make them starters until AAA and then bring them up and expect them to air it out in the bullpen every other day? These are all questions that I think it is imperative on baseball to uh, study and try to find answers to, especially with the cost of pitching these days. It's time now for our first episode of Under the Microscope, where we take an in-depth, close-up look at a most notable current player, and where could we possibly start other than with Shohei Otani of the Angels? It's a long, historic practice in baseball for scouts, managers, sports writers, and even fans to do what are called comps in trying to explain the talents of a current player 
you compare him to someone from the past. He's got the batting eye of Stan Musial. He uh, can go get him in center field like Willie Mays. He's another Sandy Koufax on the mound. The problem with Otani is that there really is no other comparison. And one of the sad things in life is when you are in the presence of greatness and you either don't see it or don't fully appreciate it. But if you're in the ballpark or on the same cable channel as Shohei Otani, I'm telling you, you are in the presence of greatness. You're seeing something that baseball fans have never seen before. Some people will say he's like Babe Ruth. Well, yes and no. Both were great pitchers. Both were great power hitters. But their career paths were extremely different. Babe Ruth made his Major League debut in 1914. He was an 18-year-old rookie. Shohei Otani made his Major League debut 104 years later in 2018. He was a 23-year-old rookie. Ruth broke in as a pitcher, and for about a five-year period, he was perhaps the best left-handed pitcher in baseball, winning 89 games in his first six seasons. He was 3-0 in the World Series with a 0.87 ERA. That's unfathomable and would be impressive if you'd ignored the fact that he went on and hit 714 home runs. The thing with Ruth, though, is that he had two careers. He came up and he was a world-class pitcher. He went on to become the most dominating power hitter in the history of the game. But there was only really a one-year overlap. And by the time he was traded from the Red Sox to the Yankees, he was no longer a pitcher. He won five games in his 15 seasons after the Red Sox traded him. He won 12 games in the one year that he both pitched and played the field. What Otani is doing is something that no one has ever done, and that is for an extended period of time, going on five seasons now, he has both excelled on the mound and in the batter's box. He had 29 home runs in his first season. He won the Rookie of the Year award primarily as a hitter, but he also started 10 games for Los Angeles. Since then, he's been perhaps the most dominant right-handed pitcher in the American League. I'm going to give you some stats to chew on, and I'd like to thank sports writer Jason Stark for doing the research on these. He does a lot more with stats than almost any other writer. How good a hitter is Shohei Otani? Well, in the first month of this current season, he hit 294, he slugged 541, and he hit seven home runs. During that time, he also was in the starting rotation. And what did the hitters do against starting pitcher Otani? They combined for a batting average not of his 294, but they hit 102 off of Otani. They slugged, if I can use that word, 185 against him. Remember, he hit 541 slugging against the rest of the league. The league slugged against him at a 185 pace. What would have to happen for those hitters to hike their batting average as high as Otani's? Not much, except they'd have to 
do something that's never happened before in baseball. Otani would have to give up a hit to the next 29 batters in a row that he faced, which seems somewhat unlikely. One other thing to consider. Otani the hitter has cranked 87 home runs since the 2021 season. Otani the pitcher has faced 131 batters this year and allowed two home runs in 131 at-bats. At that rate, how long would it take those hitters to hit the 87 home runs against him if they started right now? Well, they'd get there in July of 2031 if they hit him at the rate that he hits their pitchers. If you're looking at that and thinking he's actually gotten more mythical than ever, I think you're right, because that's how the executives in the major leagues see him, I think. You will find out after this season is over just how valuable Otani is, whether he wins the MVP award or not. This past week, a survey was done, an anonymous survey of major league executives from all 30 teams, and they were asked, to take a guess at what kind of contract offer Otani is about to get after the season ends. The lowest was a four-year deal for $240 million, or $60 million per season. The high end was 11 years at $600 million, plus, more than half a billion dollars. The average expected contract was about 11 years and between 550 and 560 million dollars. Those are mind-blowing numbers, but it indicates that what we have here is not just a unicorn. They call them that, but that's that's unreal. What we have in front of us now is one of the greatest, if not the overall greatest baseball player of all time. I don't know about you, but one of the things I do every day when I check the box scores is to see what Otani did last night. Okay, it's trivia time now here at Free Baseball. Last week's question, there were two Hall of Famers who hit home runs in their first major league at bat. I mentioned the first one as Earl Averill, who hit his first home run on April 16th, 1929 for the Cleveland Indians, but who was the only other player in the Hall of Fame to Homer in his first at-bat? Well, this is kind of a tricky question. The answer is Hoyt Wilhelm, as a few of you know. Hoyt Wilhelm hit his first home run on April 23, 1952 for the New York Giants, and as a relief pitcher for most of his 23-year career, he didn't get a whole lot of other opportunities, and he didn't hit another home run. The bonus question last week, which major league player hit the most career home runs after homering in his first at bat? And the answer to that is Carlos Lee, who hit a home run in his first at bat on May 7, 1999 against Tom Candiotti, bottom of the second inning if you care, and Carlos went on to hit 358 more home runs in an underrated major league career. All right, the current trivia question now for next week. The last few weeks, we've talked a lot about brothers, about the Mets, and about the 1950s. Today's trivia guy touches all of those bases. He played for the Mets. 
He was an all-star in the 1950s, and he won an MVP award in the 1960s. He had a brother who pitched five seasons in the big leagues, and he had another brother who played in five World Series. Now, here's a bonus hint for you. One year early in his career, his team was short a center fielder, so he was moved from his regular infield position to center, where he just happened to lead all National League center fielders in fielding. And a double bonus for you. He was also a major league manager for three years. That should be easy. We'll have the answer for you next week. I hope you enjoyed today's program. The Free Baseball Podcast is brought to you by Black Range Publishing, producers of the Gabe McKenna Mystery Series and the Black Range Pub Podcast. You can find us at www.blackrangepublishing.com. Free Baseball can also be found at the following podcast platforms, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. Come back and enjoy free baseball every Friday. I'm your host, Robert Cadera. Thanks for stopping by. See you next week.